Support for the Greater Than Code podcast comes from O'Reilly Fluent and Velocity Conferences. Taking place in San Jose, California, June 11th to 14, it's the best place to get the latest in software development, performance, operations, resilience, and so much more. Early price ends next Friday, May 4th. Register with code GTC20 to save up to $599 on your pass. Learn more at O'Reilly.com slash better together. Welcome to episode 77 of Greater Than Code. I'm here with my good friend Janelle. Hi, and I'm Janelle Klein, and happy to introduce my great, fabulous co-host, Sam Livingston Gray. Hello, and I get double duty. I get to introduce Rain Henricks, who did not introduce himself. (laughs) And today's guest is Anwan Simmons, who calls himself a technology translator. Anwan is a consultant, technologist, speaker, and author who likes to build things and help others understand how to build things. I invited Anwan on the show because I saw a wonderful talk that he gave at RubyConf last year about lending privilege, and we may or may not get to that because it sounds like he's got a bunch of wonderful stuff to say. But Anwan, we usually like to start the show by asking our now signature question, which is, what is your superpower and how did you acquire it? Thank you, Sam. And I would say that if I had a superpower, it is flexibility. And I think that I learn to be flexible because contrary to what people see me do on stage, where I'm often talking in front of hundreds of people at technology conferences, I am a huge classical introvert. I'm a Myers-Briggs INTJ uh, introvert, meaning primarily that I get drained by contact with a lot of people. And you may, if you see me at a conference and I've just come off stage, I can kind of fake the funk for maybe a couple hours, but I'm going to go back up to my hotel room and crash. (laughs) But when I was younger, I realized that despite being an introvert, I had some driving need to help people. And I always liked to help people. And I was a fairly good student. And I was particularly good at math, science, and engineering. And I learned that I could help people with their math homework or with their physics projects. And it was hard to be hopeful if you're an introvert. So I had to flex my own style. And I had to overcome my my shyness and my introversion in order to be helpful to other people. And so I learned to be flexible and I learned to adapt to different environments and to adapt to different personalities. And if I had to say I had a superpower, it's flexibility. And as someone who is an engineering manager and I currently am leading a team of about 10 developers, And over my entire career, working with people whose job is to build and develop code, being flexibility has been huge because no matter what type of person I'm working with, either a fellow introvert or an extrovert or someone who uh, likes to be micromanaged or people who like, hey, leave me alone. I'll let you know when it's done. I'm able to flex my management style and align with the people who I'm working with and serving you know, as their their manager slash leader. So I would say that my superpower is flexibility. You certainly seem very outgoing, so you must have developed some effective coping strategies. Caffeine. Caffeine. <laughs> 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 because like I said, uh, you know, there are times when I'm at work and I'm in, you know, meeting five of a 10 meeting day and I'm drained and I'm I'm running to the break room to get caffeine. But 
my desire to help people, specifically the people who I work with and the wonderful people in the tech community who I've been able to come across either at conferences or online and on Twitter. You know, my desire to help them outweighs my lack of energy sometimes uh, when I'm doing that. And so, you know, that really motivates me. I mean, I and, you know, Sam mentioned that you saw me give a talk at, at RubyConf and I've been fortunate to give talks in Budapest and London and all over the, the world. And I take the stage not because I like the spotlight. In fact, the spotlight drains me, but I like helping people. And that is what powers me. I want to highlight one thing that you mentioned, which is finding ways to be flexible and work with people the way they like to work and, and support them the way they need support. And I think that's really important because to me, one of the most important things that a manager can do is cultivate variety on their team. And I think that's one of the ways that you do it by supporting each individual way of working, set of experiences, things like that. I think that's absolutely right. There are no teams that I've worked with and you know, I've worked for big companies like Accenture and Deloitte, and I've worked for smaller startups, and I've never seen a truly homogenous team where everyone's the same. They may be the same in certain ways, but with their personalities and with how they think about life and how they think about code, always a variety is present. And so the ability to be creative is essential. And one thing about being an introvert who can masquerade as an extrovert is that I have what I think is one of the true powers of introversion, and that's observation, right? As an introvert, you're typically on the perimeter, on the outside, but you're, you're observing and because you don't have the motivation of a lot of extroverts to kind of be in the spotlight and to be the center of attention you're able to take a step back and actually observe what's happening. And you're seeing that, no, this person here has no idea what's going on. Or this person here really needs this. Or this person here, you know, has something that the other people in the group don't see. Let me try to give space for that person to get some shine. And I think that my ability to observe, and I think that the reason that a lot of writers are introverts is because of that, right? You're, you're able to take yourself out of the picture and then paint that picture for others through how you write, or for me, how I manage teams. And I do try to find creative ways to meet the needs of teams because teams are almost by definition uh, not the same. And there are differences in how people like to be approached, differences in how people like to be managed. And the careful manager will not have a sledgehammer approach where this is me, this is how I am, deal with it, but they will have the ability to flex their style in response to the people that are really leaning on them to provide direction and guidance. And, and not only that, but variety is a survival value. Variety creates capability. Absolutely. Uh, one reason that we like food, right? Food has multiple ingredients. So, you know, very few people like bland food. But if you add some salt, some paprika, some maybe different things, then that variety makes food better. The variety that we see, even if we look across most city landscapes, right? If you look at, you know, I, I'm in Houston, but if you look at the Houston skyline or the New York City skyline, you see that all the buildings look the same, right? There's variety in the, in the architecture, which makes that variety more pleasing. 
And that variety and that creativity that's exposed makes everything better. And, and I totally agree with you. There's power in variety. And variety is, I think, a big part of creativity. I feel like I should give a caveat of explanation of why I sound awful because of all the crazy pollen around here. It's it's crazy, but I'm I'm listening to this and the theme I keep hearing through all of your metaphors that you use is mirrors in that you see yourself as an observer kind of on the outside, but at the same time, you can see the needs and wants of other people. You can see their need to shine. You can see the makeup of how all the mirrors sort of mix together to create a team. And then you flex yourself in response to that. And you flex yourself to mentor and to teach is what I'm hearing. And so what I would really love to hear is kind of your philosophy on what makes a great team. What is it you see that you feel like you're building towards? I would say that continuing with the metaphor of variety and the power of variety and creativity, I would say that a great team is like an orchestra where you have a variety of different instruments. You have the percussions, you have the woodwinds, you have different types of instruments. And a good conductor is able to take all of those different sounds and follow a plan, right? There's, there's normally music that everyone reads. So there's one sheet of music, but the conductor has to follow the layout of the music, but also blend the different harmonies and the different sounds that come from the orchestra. And so I think like a good band, a good team has people who are experts at their instruments. You have people who know if, if their job is to play the harp, they're really good at playing the harp. If their job is to play a percussion instrument, wow, they know how to make that beat. If their job is to uh, play maybe a trumpet or a saxophone, then they're really great at those instruments. And so a great team has a group of people who are experts at their individual contributions to, to the team's music, right? But also, a great team is able to follow a unified set of guidance, and that's the music, right? Everyone has sheet music that tells the notes that the band has to play. And so you have that shared understanding of where you are in the music, right? Where you're at the start of the song. Okay, no, we're at the middle of the song. Oh, now we're at the end of the song and knowing how to guide the team uh, as the conductor through that music, that was makes a great team. And, you know, I am an, uh, an agilist, and so particularly with Scrum, and a lot of aspects of my job are being the Scrum Master, and though that's not my title, though I've been a named Scrum Master at several companies, I think that Scrum is like the sheet of music, right? It's not prescriptive, it's not super detailed, but it is a way for the team to harmonize and get on the same sheet of music for how we do things. So I think that having people in the orchestra or on the team who are experts at their chosen instruments, having a same sheet of music that everyone can see and read along with the conductor, but they also have to have a trust in the conductor. 
Because if you don't trust the conductor, you're going to do your own thing. And so the conductor has to be able to earn the trust of the team and be able to guide them through the music. So one question that I saw you ask in, in the chat is what gets in the way of that? Well, there are a few things, and I'll go backwards. One is when the team doesn't trust the conductor, when the team doesn't trust the person who is supposed to be guiding them. And there are a lot of ways that you can lose trust. One is you may feel that the team lead doesn't really care about the team, that the team lead is only trying to promote themselves. They're just trying to get this project done because it'll make them look good. And there's really no regard for the humanity of the people on the team. Or they may not trust the conductor because they don't really believe in the competence of the conductor, right? The conductor keeps making mistakes and doesn't really adjust for those mistakes and doesn't really help the team learn from them. Other things that get in the way of having that harmonious music is people don't see the actual music. And one thing that I do in Scrum is set up what are called information radiators, right? And those are ways that we can put, whether that's a burn down chart on the wall, whether that is mock-ups that we built, that we put around the room. But those information radiators are really sheet music that allow everyone to be on the same page. And so those are some of the things that I think get in the way of teams being really effective and that prevent the creativity that you should get by having a, a diverse team really coming together to make a harmonious sound or to make harmonious software. I love this metaphor so much. Uh, there are just a couple things I wanted to highlight. One is something I learned from uh, Benjamin Zander, who is the conductor of the Boston Philharmonic Orchestra, which is that a conductor's only power is in making the people around them powerful. It's only in empowering other people. They don't themselves, they don't make any noise. Their I think that's power. awesome. One reason that a lot of great software engineers are people who have a lot of experience building software. They often struggle when they move from an individual contributor to a team lead or manager, is that when you're an individual contributor, you're trying to maximize your own power. You're trying to be more effective at shipping software, more effective at writing code. You're supposed to have a command of the latest technologies and how they work for what your company's trying to get done. And you're, you're trying to maximize your own power. But when you move into a leadership position, the best thing you can do is maximize the people around you. The best thing that you can do is to help people reach their full potential. And a lot of people who move from individual contributor to manager, they, they forget that or they're slow to learn that. And so if a piece of software or if a feature is running behind, they're like, well, forget it. Let, I'll, I'll take it from you and I'll complete it. Whereas often it's better to help that developer understand, hey, here's some things that I think maybe you don't really understand, or here's one, one way to go about this. Or, you know, let's say you don't, I don't know if you understand polymorphism and let me help you understand that, right? Or you, you don't really understand how we're structuring the methods uh, in this code. And so by sitting with that person and helping them realize their power by powering them up, then you enable that person to get better. And I think that that is so key that as the conductor slash team lead manager, you really need to invest heavily 
and powering up everyone around you. Yeah, I agree. And I, I feel like that's a skill set that you should be practicing by the time you hit senior engineer. Um, a lot of people hit senior and they think, oh, this just means I'm able to take on more complex tickets by myself. I'm able to, you know, do architecture and crank out bigger and bigger stuff. But really, if you're a senior engineer and you're not already trying to level up the people around you, you're doing it wrong as far as I'm concerned. Absolutely. And, and that's why, you know, pair programming is such a great technique. Yeah. There are a lot of, I think, emerging practices of software development where you can be someone, even if you don't have a lead title, you can begin to help the power of other people, help to improve their ability to, to craft code. And I think that most people who do this realize that you become better by doing that. I mean, you really know if you understand the concept, if you can explain it to someone else. And if you get into that practice, then you'll become a better developer while you're helping other people too. So I think this gets back into your original um, metaphor, though, that everyone is different. And maybe that particular role, maybe that, you know, mentoring others isn't something that brings that person joy. Maybe that's something that that person just finds draining, but they love putting their headphones on and getting into code. Does that, you know, make them bad for trying to evolve in a different direction or are they just playing a different instrument? Are they just a different shape? I believe that every organization should make space for people who simply want to go heads down, get into the zone and crack out code. I think that there are people, to your point, who, you know what, I really don't want to become a manager. I really don't want to become a lead. And if you want to land at software developer or if you want to land at architect, I think that we should make space for people like that. Now, I do think that everyone should have an attitude of being helpful. And I think that everyone should understand that a team is greater than the sum of its parts. And that means that there are times where, hey, if you see someone or if you run across some code and you can refactor it or you have some ideas, that hopefully the the culture of that team is such that there's space for people who are either because they're shy or they're not interested, that there's space for them to be helpful. But I think that every organization that is in the business of software development should make space for people because there will be people uh, who have that. But I want to be careful in that they, just like there are, you know, anti-patterns in code, I think that there are anti-patterns in teams. And that person may be exhibiting an anti-pattern that's more than just personality-based, but that could possibly lead to some toxicity. And so I want to be careful with that. But I do think that as a general statement, we should make space for people who simply don't have the personality or the interest to exhibit that that leadership element of powering up others. I've got a lot of things that keep getting pushed onto my stack that I want to talk about. <laughs> but <laughs> Janelle, you mentioned the right shape, and I just wanted to talk about I'm part of my job on this podcast is to name drop things, and today it's going to be mythology. <laughs> so uh, there is a dude in uh, Greek mythology named Procrustes. And he was an innkeeper who had a bed and he promised everyone who visited his inn that the bed would fit them perfectly. And it did because if they were too short, he stretched them out. And if they were too tall, he cut off the parts that didn't fit until they fit perfectly. So when I hear culture fit a lot of the time, that's what I think about. We're going to make you fit us. 
rather than the other way around. And that is an anti-paradigm that I've seen at, unfortunately, uh, too many companies. That that culture fit is really make everyone the same. And I think that culture fit is ideally let's make sure that we have people who can contribute to the whole and make it better. And I think that often a great culture is one that brings people from a variety of backgrounds. There should be a sure set of values, things like respect and things like honesty and trust. But there should be space for people if they have the skill set that is needed by that company to come in, no matter what their personality, no matter what they look like, to come in and make contributions. So I think that we really need to be very careful when it comes to cultures and like you were saying that term culture fit but i think that if there are very openly shared values and what the company cares about ideally i think the dignity and respect that everyone is treated when they come into that company then i think that there should be lots of space for people to come in and contribute to the culture okay this lets me pop another thing off my stack and i'm, I'm very excited uh okay. you just you just you, <laughs> You just mentioned sort of the tension between shared values and goals and individual empowerment. And this reminds me of what I think is one of the most fundamental sort of tensions in work, which is the tension between structure and agency. And to go back to your metaphor of the orchestra, this manifests itself in how come even though they're playing the same music, different orchestras sound different. Ah, okay. That's a great point. So I would say that when it comes between the tension between structure and agency, especially with the illustration of orchestras playing the same music, but sounding different, I would say that's actually a feature and not a bug. I think that different orchestras play in different halls, and so the acoustics of those halls can be different. I think that conductors can take liberties with the music. You can riff on a certain beat, or if we're taking a metaphor from hip hop, you can, hip hop has a tradition of sampling other songs, often songs of a different era, and then wrapping that around a new song. So I think that that's something that can contribute to, even though you're playing the same music, that you're bringing different sounds to the audience. And I think that organizations do a service to the people who work in them by making space for that. And, you know, I think that an orchestra that's playing, let's say, some traditional piece of music and nothing comes to mind, but just imagine a very traditional piece of music that an orchestra would play. And then they pause and someone may stand up and then play some jazz because, hey, you have a great a saxophone player, and you may just let them stand up and do something uh, just kind of almost free sound, right? And so I would say that different organizations will provide agency that let people shine and walk in their gifts, but it takes a very skilled orchestra and a very skilled conductor to, to pull that off. And I think that organizations can do that, but, you know, with with care. I'm going to mention a couple of things. One, because I'm a huge nerd, which is that Mozart actually wrote his piano concertos such that they gave him room to improvise as a soloist. Exactly. And you can see this from, he wrote out improvisations for his students, for instance. So you could see what he would do 
in the context of an actual performance. The other thing is, I think the only thing that you, you maybe didn't mention for me is that each musician gets to decide how to play each note. And it's the conductor's job to make sure that they all play in harmony with, with the conductor's vision. Exactly. And I think that it takes trust, right? Uh, that you trust your individual musicians to make that, that, ch- that choice and how they're going to play their notes and that you're, you're ready for it and you're able to weave it into the, the overall sound. So one of the reasons I really like this show is that we can have conversations completely in metaphor and be able to carry the abstractions through these different contexts. It's a lot of fun. At the same time, you know, we keep going down this road and sometimes, you know, we need to go back and anchor things in concrete land. And one of the things I've heard you talk about repeatedly is the importance of creating space. And another thing that struck me that you said most recently is optimizing for people to shine and walk in their gifts. And those two things seem to fit together is creating space for people to shine. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about in concrete terms, what kind of things that you've done, what kind of things that you've seen specifically to create space for people to shine? How do you do that? That's a great question. I would say that a few things that I've done to create a space for people to shine and walk in their gifts are fundamentally people have a desire to feel safe. And I think that that essential human need is something that a lot of managers don't really think about because managers are thinking about, okay, big picture, I have this project and I have all this code that I need to get shipped to production. And then there are all these people and then I have to corral them and get them to do my bidding and to align with the charter for the project and all these management leadership aspects. But we forget that we're working with people. And at least for the time being, if you're going to build software, you have to get people to build that software. And so I think that understanding that essential human need to to, to be safe uh, is something that I'd spent a lot of time doing. And to give you a concrete example, about a year ago, I was working with a new team and I had a variety of different personalities. And I worked really hard to make sure that the team was aware of, hey, you know, I'm here to serve this team and I'm here to take all feedback, good, bad, and ugly. And I just spent a lot of time repeating that. I think that a lot of people, when they move from individual contributors to managers, right? You've been drilled into your head, right? Dry. Don't repeat yourself, right? That's a good way to build code. Uh, but I think that often we, we forget that you have to repeat yourself constantly because anytime you say something as a manager, there's probably at least one person who's tuned out or there's one person who you know is thinking about something else. And so I think it's really important that we repeat that message because when people hear you say something over and over again, then they eventually will begin to grok it. And so I think it's important to be willing to to, sh- to to really share that message of safety. And a couple again, about a year ago, I had this team and there was one person who was, I would say, different from what I'm used to. And this person was 
kind of a wisecracker and they would often crack jokes and sometimes their humor was around the edges of what I was comfortable with. <laughs> and just the way that they viewed the world and shared their views through just, you know, even casual conversation. And I did a lot of work with the team individually to make sure that they weren't being offended by the humor. And I think they took it all in good fun. But I was concerned that this person was, I guess, a a little more lax with some of the professionalism that I'm used to. And, you know, again, a lot of my experience are at these big companies where things are a bit more buttoned down. But I made space for this person. I let them know that, hey, I'm fine with your humor. I'm fine with your jokes. As long as we're aligned with what we're trying to to get done, then hey, have at it. Uh, the team took it on in, in good fun. They took it all in, in stride. And I was able to make space for this person, even though they were from a personality standpoint and from, in many ways, a professionalism standpoint outside of the pattern that I was used to. And that person went on to be one of the best con- contributors to our team. And they they tackled some really thorny features they took on some technologies that were new to everyone and they were able to quickly master them and became a very valued contributor to the team. And I think that if I had not made space for that person, even though this person and I had really different personalities and we had different ideas of what professionalism is in software development, then I would have missed out on working with this person and seeing them really be hugely consequential to the success of that project. And I think that a lot of managers in that situation may even try to roll this person off the project, try to get them off the project. And I was able to swallow my own discomfort with this person in a lot of ways. And, and, you know, he, he never ventured too far into like misogyny or anything like that, but by helping him shine, by making space for this person who, what I would say is kind of on the bubble of my comfort zone, I was able to have someone who really helped the entire team be successful. I feel like you're talking about me personally. <laughs> oh, <laughs> I've, I've been that guy on the team. Uh, sometimes it's been, sometimes I, I will fully admit I've been kind of toxic. And uh, in other, uh, as my career went on, I, f- I feel like I got better about recognizing that I needed to uh, pay attention to that sort of thing myself. And I got to a place where like, I will make jokes about like who writes this crap, but I will deliberately make them when I know I'm the one who wrote it um, to sort of establish right. that sense of trust with the team that like, I'm not, I'm not making fun of you. I am having fun uh, with my own uh, weird way of looking at the world, <laughs> but right. I, and I've, I've had those bosses who have been able to make that sort of space for me and having that trust from them really made a huge difference for me in being able to police myself on that a little bit too. Exactly. And, and I think that it's, it's important to make that space. And I think that often when you become someone who is responsible for a team, you have to understand that people are on different journeys and that they come to your team from different paths. And if they have the talent and the skills and the attitude to, hey, I'm willing to get my hands dirty. I'm willing to take on things that other people don't want to do and and master it, which is what this person did. You have to kind of peer past some of the layers of personality that you may not care for and some of the humor that isn't like your humor and see 
the benefit, see the value in that person, and then make space for them. You do have to be aware of times when, yeah, that person's humor may go too far, but as long as they're within the bounds of what you would say are expected behaviors, then that person can become huge. And it by and by building that trust, then you let that person hopefully feel that, hey, I can be me, right? I can be me. I can be a respected member of this team and help make it successful. And I think that that's really important. I've been very proud of at the time for not being able to do that by working with someone. I'm curious, did you, did you at any point... Um explicitly uh, elicit like a shared agreement about that behavior from the team? That is a good point. Um, I did not explicitly do that. Um, you know, a shared agreement about this person or a shared agreement about behavior? About the kinds of behavior uh, so that people could hold each other accountable about it. I gotcha. So I started before that project. One of the things that I typically do when I do a project kickoff is go through working agreements. And those are things that are like, hey, during the sprint retrospective, you may get some feedback that may be kind of close to your you know, comfort zone, or you may get some feedback that's hard to receive, but we're all going to have tough skin and understand that it's meant to be constructive. And there are working agreements around you know, basic things like working hours, et cetera, and so forth, but there are some behaviors that are in there. It's lightly touched, but yes, we do have working agreements that are meant to, from the beginning, uh, set that tone. This can be a re- really useful tool. Thank you for bringing for bringing that up. So, so you mentioned this individual that had weirdness, say, from cultural norms, and I've seen a couple different types of responses to weirdness. One of them is tolerance. So it's like kind of a distancing response. Yeah, you're a weirdo and I'll put up with you and accept you being a weirdo kind of thing. And another uh, response you see is normalizing. So if you're a weirdo, I'll be a little bit more weirdo like you and then we'll be weirdos together, right? Either one of those effects has a effect on the culture. And so I'm wondering, in addition to how this individual responded, how was the culture affected by this person on the team? So I would say that first, between normalization and tolerance, there's acceptance. And I think that I took that approach, whereas I accept this is who you are. And I also try to get to know this person outside of their role and their assigned work items and get to know their friends and what they care about, some aspects of their personal life, so that they know that, hey, I'm interested in you as a person. Uh, And I accept the fact that, hey, you're really dedicated to athletics. And, oh, hey, if you need to leave early to go hit the gym, as long as your work's done for the day, as long as your commitments are done for the day, that's fine. And be very flexible with them when it comes to aspects of the project that I know may intrude upon their personal life. And I did that with the entire team, not just with this person, but by by doing that, that was really important in helping this person feel accepted and knowing that I'm not just tolerating your behavior, nor am I trying to say that I'm going to mirror it, but I'm going to make space for you to be you uh, to the degree that, that I can. Uh, with regards to the impact on the culture, this person became a beloved member of our team and people really liked having him around. 
And, and, and so, you know, I did my due diligence and regularly checked it to make sure that people were taking his humor in good fun. But I think that that was what I think uh, was brought up earlier, that we have to make space for people to, to freestyle, that every now and then the orchestra can be, you know, in our chairs, in our tuxedos, in our formal gowns, but let someone come in in their pink suit every now and then and, and rock that out. And I think that I've always benefited from making space for those people. And the group often benefits as well because they know that, you know, everyone has some hidden weirdness that they're just better at hiding than other people. And by letting this person have that shine, then that people just be their essential true selves. That lets other people know that, okay, there's space for me to also be my true self. And they may not do that immediately. But I think just knowing that is helpful for the overall culture. I guess that's another aspect of mirroring then is, I mean, you, you brought this up as a metaphor, just explaining these things a couple times of how people mirror behavior. And it's not just tolerance. And, and or I should say, but it, I, I'm trying to remember what specifically you said, that it's between normalization and tolerance is acceptance and taking the time to really get to know someone and that you're genuinely interested in who they are as an individual and that by with your own behavior of accepting people for who they are you make space for those people and you set a precedent for that kind of admiration of the the beauty and uniqueness of the individuals Absolutely. And I think that that's just my my respect for for humanity uh, includes the parts of humanity that aren't like me. Right. The parts of humanity that aren't like the collective. And I think that it's important to make space for those people and that by by doing that, then you people do see that people do see that reflected. And even if they don't have their own divergence from the collective, even if they told a line and they're a carbon copy of everyone else, I think that they that they see that and that they respect that. And I think it does make the overall environment richer. There are two things I want to highlight in this this last discussion here because they're both actually part of again, uh, I love bringing this up, Virginia Satir's family therapy model. Uh, so how do you build constructive, authentic relationships with people. And for her, two of the important things are acknowledging the inherent value in everyone that everyone has just by being a human being. And two is giving each person the gift of seeing them for who they are and not for who you want them to be. So that resonates so much with me because a key part of my management leadership style is making sure that everyone knows that I care about them for who they are, that it's critically important to me that they can walk in their authentic selves. And I think a lot of the times at a lot of companies, we look to upper management, the CEO and the CFO and the CIO, and we think, well, that's who this company wants me to be. Whereas that's not the case. That's not who I want you to be. You can be who you are, and I will totally accept uh, you as your authentic self, because I think that we bring our best performance, we bring the best outcomes when we are comfortable in just being who we are. And I think that it's a it's a severe demotivator to a lot of people 
when they believe that when they walk into the doors of their company or if they work remotely, when I log into the corporate Slack or the corporate Zoom or Google Hangouts for video conferences, that I have to put on a mask uh, in addition to doing my work. I really want my team to know, take off the mask, man. Just be or a woman or gender non-conforming person or <laughs> take off the mask person. I care about the human that you are. I don't care about the mask. I don't care about the facade. I care about you. However you want to present yourself, that's what I want to see. And I think that when I can create an environment where people do that, man, that's all to the better. That's all to the benefit of everyone. But so few organizations and so few teams do that because it's hard work. It's hard work to create that environment. It's hard work to have the conversations that you need to have. It's hard work to get to know a person. It's so easy to, to, to take the shortcut of stereotypes, to take the shortcut of, hey, shut up, get the work done. Those are all shortcuts. But you lose so much when you take those shortcuts. It's always worth the investment in humanity and in, in the investment in helping people understand that you truly value who they are. You know, this gets back to something I was thinking about earlier. You you mentioned that variety exposes creativity. Um, that made me think of what uh, Sarah May tweets about fairly regularly. She talks a lot about how having visible differences on a team puts people into a different headspace where they pay more attention to how they communicate. And that in turn improves the communication patterns on the team, which leads the team to a place of improved creativity and better group intelligence. I like just having an emphasis on that creativity, but I really like how you're taking this further and talking about adding the psychological safety aspect to that, because that seems to be like one of the most important things for getting the most out of your team. Absolutely. And I, I, I love Sarah, by the way. If you hear this, hi, Sarah. <laughs> Thanks for all you do. Uh, I just wanted to mention uh, Virginia Satir again, because one of her uh, quotes that resonates the most with me is that we come together through our similarities and we grow through our differences. I think that that's so true. I think that similarities bring comfort and often complacency. If you could imagine the last time you went to an event and you weren't properly dressed, that's really highlighted to you. Right. Everyone's wearing tuxedos. I'm wearing flip flops, some jeans and like no shirt. <laughs> You're really going to pay attention to the environment in ways that you probably would not if you were dressed like everyone else. And I do think that when we put groups together and there are differences, just simply the act of doing that forces people to pay attention in ways that they would not if everyone looked the same. So I think that, that, that that's totally right. I'm just imagining the difficulty of going to work every day and putting on a mask and feeling like you have to conform to this environment and that you can never be yourself and that not having to do that because of the effort it takes to get to know people, the effort it takes to see people as people is so hard that we don't do it and that effectively this wearing masks every day is the norm, right? I mean, this is like the norm of society. The norm of our world is to shove your weirdness in a box, put yourself in a box and how, how draining that must be and how much freedom you bring to a team just by creating this environment, this culture where people don't have to do that anymore. 
Absolutely, and that's uh, said I mentioned in my my lending my lending privilege talk. And one reason that I started giving that talk is that I had really great opportunities to have conversations with people who are often othered by, by working in tech. Right there is the the othering of being in tech, and women share with me that, hey, you know, I changed my outfit four times before I left home because I was concerned that my blouse was too low cut or this skirt would make people think that I'm not skilled or I'm not, you know, I'm not worthy being respected as a team lead or a developer. Or I, someone who's trans said, you know, I'm having trouble just even, you know, having, having space to go to the bathroom at work. Right. Or someone who has a, a handicap, uh, they have a, a, a hearing aid and, they're scared that one day the battery in my hearing aid may go down and I won't be able to hear something and I'll miss some, you know, there may be on the infrastructure team and they'll, they'll miss something and there'll be some high severity issue that they'll get blamed for because their hearing aid uh, went out. And, you know, I'm a straight cisgendered uh, able-bodied person, thankfully. And those are things, and I'm, I also, I'm male. Those are things I don't even think about, right? I don't think about what I wear. I, if, if I'm not naked, I'm good, right? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I make it to work and I don't have any physical disability, but there are people who have to go through all these things and people who don't have those experiences, people who are, again, cisgendered, able-bodied, male and other factors, we just don't even see those struggles, and I think that if we create technology and the business of making software, a space where we see those differences, we try to remove them. We try to make sure that people feel welcome despite uh, their differences. Then I think that we'll see people bring their true selves and in many ways, their true gifts uh, to this industry. And I think that uh, that variety and that creativity link uh, will become more evident. And I think that it is exhausting uh, if you're a woman and you feel like you have to hide who you are, hide your even your, your femininity. If you're a woman who feels that you have to be less feminine uh, to be in tech, or if you're uh, someone with some other measure or some other characteristic, that's not the norm, uh, that you have to hide that. And I think that we do our sector a great disservice uh, when we keep people out because of that. And I think the degree to which, you know, lending privilege and there's a lot of the people who are doing great work in this space, helping make technology more inclusive and more accepting that I think we're doing a lot for making better software. We're doing a lot for making an environment that hopefully future generations can come into without the restraints, without the shame, uh, without the limitations that we put on the current generation. So uh, I'm, I'm really all about that. So taking this back to where we started with your superpower and flexibility, I'm wondering, did you have an experience that helped you to see other people in this way? Because you said people that you know are similar to you often are blind to these things, yet you seem to see them quite well. So I think that one of my earlier experiences in my career was as a black man in tech who was fortunate enough to, in my mid-20s, begin leading software development teams, had the experience of being in a conference room and having someone come in and ask, 
where's the team lead? And I said, I'm the team lead. <laughs> or, you know, I'm the team lead. And then a, a person comes in and they begin talking to someone who reports to me because they assume that because that person's white, that they're the team lead. And, and having those experiences as a black person in tech, being othered and having to deal with that gave me an understanding of the ways that even I sometimes uh, would other different individuals because of their gender, because of other preferences. And I began to do the work in helping to remove my own biases and removing the shortcuts that I took in assessing people. And I began to see that, wow, there is a lot of work that I need to do. And there's a lot of work that the industry needs to do. And I think that that gave me greater empathy. And that, when coupled with my flexibility, has made me into the person I am today, who's able to flex to other people to accept their differences, even when they're radically different from who I am, but to see the ancestral humanity. And I think that there's one thing that summarizes what I try to do either through talks or just the daily work I do with my teams. I am mining humanity. I'm trying to mine humanity to get to people's essential selves, make space for that humanity that I find and help lift it up. I feel like we should do reflections. That was beautiful. Thank you. <laughs> uh, I do have a quick response, if I may. Please. You didn't. Uh, actually talk about this, but I, I assume that somewhere along the way, uh, some people shared their own challenges with you. And again, this all comes back to safety. Uh, at some point, you had to behave in a way that you earned those people's trust so that when they felt that they could come to you and tell you what their struggle was, uh, and know that you would be uh, there for them and hear them and listen and respond appropriately. I think, again, one benefit of being an introvert is that you get really good at listening. And it is surprising how many people don't listen. They may pretend to listen, but they're really waiting for you to stop talking so that they can say what they want to actually say. <laughs> I, being a lifelong introvert, listening. When people talk, I listen to what they're saying. I'm looking at their body language. Again, being an introvert, my ability to truly observe people, I think, has been honed. And I can hear what they're saying and get a sense for what they're not saying. And I'm able to say, well, you're saying this, but it seems like this is what's going on with you. And I think that by being a person that just through my behavior and how I conduct myself with other people, people see that and one actually listens. And by being someone who people see as a listener, that helps me gain their trust. And when people feel that you are a, are a listener, they give you more to listen to and they'll begin to share their true selves, their true concerns, their true fears. And so I think that, you know, along with flexibility, if I had another superpower, it's being a listener. So at this part of the show, we normally do reflections and kind of recap on things that stood out to us, ideas that we're going to take away from the show, things that were common themes or, or things that were major themes that stood out? 
for me, a lot of what we've talked about today really boils down to safety. And safety is something that I've been thinking about a lot personally in the past couple of weeks. And we talked about it extensively on last week's episode. And last week, we talked about it more from a personal standpoint of, of individual one-on-one relationships. But um, it's really nice this week to hear about the ways that uh, safety can improve a team as well and uh, lead to all kinds of wonderful harmonies. And uh yeah, I just uh, really want to underline how important that is, uh, even if you haven't necessarily been paying attention to it. Uh, it's worth going around and looking for environments around you that you enjoy being in, and you probably feel safe there. Once you've had that realization, it's really helpful in figuring out how to go out and create that safety in other spaces that you're in and for other people that you're around. So as as people may have noticed uh, about me by now and to I'm sure some source of consternation for Janelle. I like to think about things in abstractions and generalities and make models for systems that are as general as possible so I can understand things and apply them as broadly as possible. For me, a lot of what we've been talking about comes back to the concept of a psychological hierarchy of needs at which safety is at the bottom and where the questions like, do we have a shared sense of purpose are non sequiturs if you haven't even met the bar of safety and to ideas of how do you build caring, genuine relationships with other people that I think are at the basis of management, of leadership, of building teams uh, in general. And I think that comes back to truly valuing the other person for who they are. And I think that everything we've, we've talked about can be these things form a basis, I think, for understanding and, and a reference frame for thinking about everything that we've talked about today. I really appreciate this discussion. It's caused me to think more deeply about some of the metaphors that I like to use and where they apply and, and how they can also lead us astray sometimes. Um, and I've just really enjoyed it. So thank you. The overriding theme in all of this seems to be around culture. And a lot of times with management, I found myself really disappointed in the leadership in our engineering leadership from company to company. There's so much dysfunction that is largely a result of seeing people as objects and everything that kind of comes along with that. And I've been listening to Anwan talk about culture and the way he sees and the way he lifts people. And it's quite beautiful to me because I can imagine this world that he creates around him just by being a leader, by people mirroring this world of getting to know one another as people, seeing the diamond and the potential in their souls, seeing all that they can be and giving them the space to take off their mask and to set a precedent that we can all be our unique selves, our unique diamonds, and the beautiful creative culture that emerges from that. And so I think about how much I've been disappointed with so much in the way of leadership. I'm walking away from this conversation 
with a feeling of deep respect. Thank you so much. And it's very, very kind. I think that I'm just someone stumbling around in the dark, grasping around like everyone else. And when I find a little bit of light, I try to share it. And I think that Sam really hit the nail on the head with safety. I put into the chat an article I wrote for Monoview Culture, uh, which isn't being published anymore, but I wrote about making tech safe spaces for diverse faces. And I wrote that article because I go to a lot of conferences and I was going to a lot of conferences back then when I wrote it. And I just saw that a lot of conferences didn't really see safety as a key part of the experience. They may have talked about it. Maybe they had a code of conduct, but it was often just words on a wall or maybe something they put into the registration page. And that safety aspect is key. You know, there's, there's, you know, the famous Maslow's hierarchy of needs where after you have food, water, shelter, you can self-actualize. But I think even beneath food and water is safety because if you don't feel safe, you're not going to go out and forage your food. You're not going to go out and find water. It's going to be hard to meet your needs. And I think safety is a foundational aspect of life that people really need to be their best selves. And I put a lot of thought into what I can do with the people who I come into contact with, uh, the teams I have the privilege of serving, uh, the companies that I have the privilege of walking into to give a talk, the people I meet at conferences. And if there's anything that I want to be is be that, that safe space and be someone who is an agent to make the space that we all work in, this technology field, this software engineering field safer. And this is something that, that I really am, am passionate about. And I'm glad to have uh, the people who listen to this um, hopefully hear this and also take up that mantle, take up the, the baton of making the technology sector a safe space for, for everyone. That was so beautiful. Well put. I've really enjoyed this show. It's been great. Thank you so much. I've enjoyed it as well. Can I just mention one thing to get it off of, to clear my stack? And we don't even have to air this, but... We were talking about masks, and I, I just want to mention that I think it's really important to honor that the masks we choose to wear are also a part of who we are. That's a great point. Yes. And people should have the agency to choose those masks and to take them on or off as they feel the need to. Yeah, great point. Well, thank you all, and listeners, we'll be back at you real soon. 